My name is Darren, and uh, I'm one of the leaders, one of the shepherds here on staff. Excited to open God's Word with you this morning. Now, uh, I am guessing, just based on the way it works for most people, that even as Christina read the passage that we're studying this morning, there may be some of you who have some whistles and alarm bells going off in your head. Maybe some of you are gripping your armrests of your seats, or a little bit of cartoon steam blowing out of your ears. I'm not sure how that feels. I want to begin just by just by reminding you, I want to use this text this morning as, a, as sort of an, we're going to look at the text, but I also want it to be reminded this morning, all of us, about a sort of a general uh, value with regard to the way we interpret scripture. We, we have to always pay attention, not only to the verse and what's in the verse, but what is in the context, the verses that are around the verse, what's being said in the course of a chapter. More importantly, as we've said several times over the last couple of weeks, the chapter divisions that we find in our modern Bibles were not present in, in the original text. And so sometimes we make these breakdowns and we go, well, what is it saying in the chapter? But when Paul was writing the church at Corinth, he wasn't writing in chapters. He was writing a long letter, right? And so we have to pay attention to the context, yes, of the chapter and of the verses around the individual verses we might look at, but we also have to look at the the context, the broader heart and emphasis of a whole book. And then uh, we want to step back, even as it's referred to in in Acts, we want to look at the whole counsel of God, right? We want to be looking at the whole of the Bible and the way that all of the verses work together. We understand that even as it says in this text, God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. That what Paul has been advocating for week after week is that things would be done in consideration of others. And so when we come to a passage like the one we're in today that has a couple of troubling verses there in 34 and 35 in particular, uh, we have to remember that we, we can't just pull those verses out and think about what they mean out of context or we'll do damage both to the text, the intention of the author, and potentially damage to our brothers and sisters in the room. Does that make sense? So we always have to think about the context. If we, if we throw context out, there's all kinds of dangerous and silly things that can happen with Bible passages. I mean, there's a, there's a passage in Psalms 137 verse 9 that says, Blessed are those who dash children against the rocks. Anybody want to take that one out of context? I mean, that's troubling. If you just make Psalm 137 9 your theme verse for life, you've got a problem, right? There's, uh, there is a passage in Amos chapter 4 that talks about, uh, it says, Come to Gilgal, come to Bethel, and sin all you want. Right? That might be like a New English Standard version, I don't know. Come to Bethel and Gilgal. If you're looking for a place to sin, go to Bethel and Gilgal, according to Amos chapter 4, verse 4. In Ecclesiastes, which we'll study in a couple of months, Ecclesiastes 10, 19, in the first half of that verse, it talks about the fact that money is the answer for everything. Anybody believe that? Anybody believe that that's what the Bible believes, that money is the answer for everything? No, but it says that in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. So a couple of illustrations of what can happen, the damage that can be done when we pull a single verse or a single couple of verses and we don't pay attention to the context in which we find them, the context of the overarching emphasis, the context uh, of the literary structure, the time in which the book was written, uh, context of the whole of the Bible and the whole counsel of God, the character of God himself and the things that Jesus said. We always want to be looking at context context, right? As we were preparing to study this text this morning, uh, some of those in leadership, as we were looking at it in advance, said it might be helpful in the course of uh, this particular study to look at verses 34 and 35, uh, 33, to look at them first and to just handle that because people are going to be so distracted by wondering what's coming that they won't pay attention to the earlier things. My challenge to that, uh, and the reason we're going to work through this section verse by verse, is that if we pull those verses out that might trouble you, 
or they, you, they might make you mad or they might make you happy or you might find them confusing or problematic or whatever. If we pull those out, we do the very thing I'm arguing against. Does that make sense? If I take the time right here at the beginning to tell you what I think about verses in the middle of the text, we pull it out of context and I'm then giving you an opinion of what I believe the text says out of the context of the whole, which is exactly the opposite of what I'm advocating for. In your own study of God's word, in your hunger for God, right? In your hunger for God and what he has said, in your desire to be submitted to him and to follow him, as you study God's word, pay attention to the context and don't let yourself get distracted by problematic pieces, but rather look at the way they fit in the whole. In essence, what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40, is the same thing he said uh, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 14. It's quite simple to understand. It's essentially what he was advocating for in 1 Corinthians 13 and in pieces of 1 Corinthians 12. In some ways, it's what he's been talking about in the entirety of the whole book, that there is a call for us to recognize that God has called us to be a community together. And in that being of a, a community together, he's given us different gifts. There's all kinds of of diversity, but we have to be unified. And in the use of those gifts, we have to be considering the good of the other before the good of ourselves. We've heard that again and again and again. In fact, if there wasn't a problematic piece of 1 Corinthians 14 here at the end, we could have just tied 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40 to the study last week, and it would have made perfect sense in that context, right? But we've broken it up so that we can look at this a little more specifically. But if you're wanting to understand Paul's emphasis here in 1 Corinthians, You can find it here in just the first couple of verses. Verse 26, he says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Does that sound familiar? If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, that phrase, let all things done for building up, should sound redundant to you. It should sound like a thing we've already talked about. He's advocating for an I in the midst of our worship and also uh, earlier in the book in the way we conduct ourselves outside of corporate worship with an eye toward the good of other people. That's what he's advocating for all the way along. That God has blessed you and you should live your life also to be a blessing. Here Paul puts the final touches on his call for Christ followers to live in consideration of others, both within our gatherings or assemblies and without in daily life. And it's actually not difficult to understand. We've already elaborated quite a bit, except for a couple of controversial things in the middle. So let's work our way through and see how those verses fit in the bigger picture. He says... 26. Let's just look at the first 31 verses here. He says, what then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a confusion, but a God of peace. That's just reading the first half of verse 33. In essence, at the beginning of this last section, this this part we're studying today, he uses once again the illustrations of prophecy and of tongues. And what he's calling for here is just that these things would be exercised. If you have the gift of tongues, that it would be exercised in an orderly way. So he says, if somebody has the gift of tongues, 
tongues and they're wanting to share what God is giving them and they're speaking in tongues, they need to have someone to interpret, right? So he says, let's do it one by one. Maybe no more than two or three people will share. And then there needs to be interpretation. And he says, if there is no interpretation, then the person who has the gift of tongues should consider submitting himself for the good of the whole and remaining silent and just keeping that communication between him and God. It's exactly the same thing we talked about last week, right? It's very redundant that he's not putting tongues aside. He's not dispelling tongues. He's not saying there's no place for it. What he's saying is without an interpreter, it's not good for everybody. So here, as he's making the case that everything should be done for building up, that everything should be done in turn and in order, he says, if you're going to speak in tongues, it probably shouldn't be 20 of you. And it definitely shouldn't be 20 of you all speaking at the same time, right? It shouldn't just be chaos. He'll say later in the text, our God is not a God of chaos us, but he's a God of peace. So take turns one at a time, share what you've got, make sure there's an interpreter. And if there isn't, and this is important, he advocates for silence, right? He advocates for silence, which is in essence saying to anybody with the gift of speaking in tongues, he's calling them to submission, right? Not submission because of their gender, not submission because of the kind of tongue they ha- or the kind of gift they have, not submission because of their role in society or their place in the hierarchy of the church. He's calling them to submission of their gift for the good of other people. Use your gift for the good of other people. And if there can't be an interpreter, then shush, right? By the way, throughout this text, every time he calls for silence, the kind of silence that he's calling for, if you look at the original language, is not permanent silence forever. So he's not saying to a tongue speaker, if you don't have an interpreter on a particular Sunday for worship, then you have to be quiet for the rest of your life. You may never, ever speak ever again in any context. No, he's saying... Hold your tongue for the moment until there's an interpreter or until it can be beneficial for the whole group. He's calling for submission and silence for the part of those who speak in tongues for the good of the whole in that moment that they would hold their tongues. Does that make sense? Likewise, he then talks about prophecy and he says essentially the same thing. He says, if there are people who have a a prophetic gift, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So he's not only advocating for uh, taking turns and only one or two people speaking in the midst or two or three speaking. He doesn't put a cap on prophecy here, but he says, do it in turn and do it in order. And then everybody else has the opportunity to weigh what's being said. And the spirit of prophets is subject to prophets. He's saying you shouldn't just take at face value what everybody says. You might have someone who says, I have a prophetic gift and they get up and they say something that's contradictory to the spirit of Christ or contradictory to the revealed word of God, right? Now, remember, they didn't have a Bible the way that we have a Bible today, but they were growing in their understanding of doctrine, right? And you might have someone that would get up and say, I have a, I have a prophetic word from the Lord and they would declare something that was self-congratulatory, or it might've been something that was in direct opposition to the spirit of Christ. So he says, when someone declares prophecy, let's do it decently. Let's do it in order. Let's take turns. And then there should be the weighing and the evaluation of what was said to see if it's right. That's still something we should be doing today, by the way, right? There are a lot of people, more than ever, right? With YouTube and all the online venues, social media and whatever, there are a billion people out there telling you that they know what's right. And we've got to weigh everything. There are people all the time who are claiming to be speaking on behalf of God. And many times what they're saying is in contradiction to the heart and revealed word of God already. 
So what he says here is that there needs to be consideration, that there would be one by one, that it would be in turn. But note here too, that in those verses where he's talking about prophecy, he says, if a revelation, um, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Well, what's he talking about? Once again, he's talking about holding the tongue for a moment of time. He's not talking about silence forever. He's talking about that particular person submitting for the good of the whole. Submitting their turn to speak for the good of the whole, right? So yes, submission for the good of the whole. And silence that isn't permanent and exclusive, but silence that is situational and temporary, right? So he says, as someone's prophesying, somebody else gets a a revelation, then the first would submit to the others, right? It says in 31, and this is important too, if you're taking notes today, maybe you underline all in this verse, verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Once again, he's not limiting who, who can prophesy and who can't, except that it's limited to those who have the gift, right? But earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, which we've already studied, if you weren't here on that Sunday, you can go back and listen to that. In 1 Corinthians 11, he's already established that he believes that both men and women can prophesy, right? He's not limiting that to one particular gender. We talked when we studied 1 Corinthians 11 that his issue in 1 Corinthians 11 is not whether or not men and women equally receive the gift and equally are welcome to share it, but rather for the sake of shaming their family members, he was inviting those women to wear head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11, remember? Because of the cultural setting in which they found themselves. Because there was the potential for bringing shame. It's an honor-shame culture to which he's writing. And so what he's advocating for in this case, both with tongues and with prophecy, is think about the way it impacts the broader good, and if necessary, hold your tongue for a moment for the benefit of other people. That's what he's saying with regard to prophecy and to tongues. Our God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. I was reminded as I was studying this of what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. In James chapter 3, verse 16, he says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown by peace, sown in peace by those who make peace. James, here in James chapter 3, is, is saying something very similar to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14. Our God is not a God of disorder. He's not a God of chaos. It shouldn't be 20 people speaking in tongues all at the same time, or 20 people prophesying all at the same time without ever any evaluation of the rightness or wrongness of the prophecy. We have to do things orderly and in turn... For the good of one another, because our God is a God of order, not a God of chaos, right? There's this evaluation. I liked what, uh, what Pastor Stephen Um said about this, and I'll, I'll, you, I'm, I'm not quoting him directly, but his emphasis is this. What Paul is saying here is, is that if what we've got in the church is freedom, pure and simple, just pure freedom, then you end up with chaos, right? Freedom without order becomes chaos, And on the other side, what he's not advocating for is order without freedom. He's not saying, hey, we need to have such a rigorous structure that there's no opportunity to be moved by the Spirit in the moment, right? Because order without freedom becomes tyranny, right? So put those two things side by side. Freedom without order is chaos, and we don't want chaos in our worship. Order without freedom becomes tyranny, right? It's It's just a routine, 
What he's advocating for here is indicative of the heart of Christ and the spirit of Christ followers throughout scripture. And that is order that produces a context in which freedom can happen, right? Order that produces a situation where freedom is possible. I was reminded also of what he says, uh, Paul, there's Paul in Galatians 5, verse 13. He says, for you were not called, excuse me, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another, right? You've been called to freedom, but that freedom isn't to serve yourself. It's not for chaos. It's meant to be utilized in a way that blesses other people. That's Paul's point here again in 1 Corinthians 14. Whether tongues or prophecy, whatever your gifts, we want to do things in order and we want to do things in a way that builds others up. He's already said that in very plain terms. Now we get to 33 and here's where it starts to get complicated. 33 and following are, again, verses upon which you can find 50 different people with 50 different opinions. And I'll give you some of the most prominent so that you can kind of wade through with me. But remember the context, right? As we're looking at these next verses, remember that he's got a main point he's making. When we get to 33, you'll notice something interesting, even in your ESV translations, if you have uh, one of our journals or if you're using the, the, the Bibles that are in the seat back, you'll notice that the new paragraph starts in the middle of 33, right? It starts in the middle of 33. So it says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. There's a period added, that punctuation is added. And then it says, as in all the churches of the saints. One of the places where theologians and commentators get into disagreement is where that, as in all the churches of the saints, is spoken to go, right? And so even in our ESV translations, it's a little funky because you see a new paragraph start kind of in the middle of a verse. 34 doesn't start until after that. And again, verses are not important. Those are, those have been added in, but part of that is reflecting the confusion people have. They don't know whether he's saying, uh, whether he's saying for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Or if he's saying, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent, right? They're not sure whether it goes with what comes before it or after it. And there are great theologians who make a great case on either account. I don't necessarily know that it matters all that much, right? But for someone who's trying to advocate a really strong opinion about what follows with regard to women being silent, they will sometimes advocate for that section to be put where it is in our ESV Bibles at at the beginning of the next phrase as a way to say, this is universally true in all the churches, right? That what they're going to say about women being silent is true across the board. But I just want you to see as we study it, it's not as plain and plain and dry as that, right? It's not as simple as some have made it out to be. There is a question about whether that phrase goes with what comes before it or after it. But in the context of things being done in order, here's what we can say for sure. Let me read you these verses and then let's look at it together. He says, uh, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, now, you probably already have a little bit of a clue about the way we interpret these verses in our church, based on the fact that Christina read the passage, right? There are some who would look at a passage like this, and these, by the way, are people who have a very high view of Scripture, people who love Jesus dearly, who understand the gospel. But there are some who have a very high view of Scripture who would say, a woman like Christina, not to pick on her, she did a great job with the Scripture reading and everything else she does, but there are some who would take verses like these and say, she should never say anything audibly in a service at all, under any circumstances, right? 
If you pull 34 and 35 and you look at them just by themselves without the rest of the context and without the rest of the context of the book, without the rest of all of Paul's teachings and without the context of the larger Bible, you can make a case for saying women should never make a noise in church. That is obviously not what we believe at this church. Right? <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't, we'd be in violation of our own principle here. But there are some, just to show you the breadth of opinion, there are some who interpret these verses that way and say, women have no place in making audible noise in a gathered assembly, right? It's not, it's not what we believe, but there are some who do. And I want to be clear, again, that those who interpret the verses this way, while we would disagree with them, and while we would disagree with their interpretive techniques, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're wicked people. They're not your enemies, Does that makes sense? The people who I believe misinterpret those verses this way are not my enemies. They're just people who've read a complicated text in a different way. And we need to get out of the practice of viewing those who interpret passages of scripture that are complicated differently than us as our enemies. Does that make sense? We must, we must relinquish that because many times they are not our enemies. They're just people who read a complicated text in a different way. Some people will say this text is advocating for women to be completely silent in every situation all the time. There are some actually who will make a decent argument, and this is also not something I agree with, but let me just give it to you for the sake of argument. There are some who will make the case that verses 34 and 35 actually don't belong in this text at all, that they were added later or that they were uh, not in this particular position. You'll note that if you take 34 and 35 out, you can actually read this chapter without 34 and 35 and it makes perfectly good sense. So there are great people with a high view of scripture who love the Lord Jesus, who understand and believe in the gospel, who will say, we don't think these two verses fit here. We don't think they were originally here. We think somebody added them later to back up their own sort of agenda and they'll make a case for it. I don't think they have a good case, but I do understand that there are some who are, are learned people who would say that these have, are an interpolation, that they've been dropped in. Um, there are also some who will say, this is just like now a third opinion maybe, uh, there are some who will advocate for the fact that what Paul's doing in 34 and 35 is that he's quoting their original letter to him in a sarcastic way. So I don't want this to get too confusing to you, but some people will say that when he gets to this part here where he says, uh, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, they should be in submission, that he's almost doing it in a, in a, in a form of mockery, that maybe they had said that to him. And now he's writing back to them and saying, you're telling me that the women aren't allowed to speak in the church, that they have to be quiet all the time. And that in that case, their argument is that 36 is his sort of refutation of that opinion. These are scholarly people who've done scholarly work. They love Jesus. They have a high view of scripture. I just happen to disagree with them. I don't think he's quoting the church at Corinth here. I don't think he's being snarky with them. I also don't think these verses are in the wrong place. I actually think in the context of the chapter and the book and the heart of Paul and the heart of Christ, these verses can make great sense right where they're at. But it's important for you to know, as people who want to be hungry and love God's word, that with a text like this, there are lots of different opinions. And it's worth digging in to get a sense of all of the different ideas that can come. And it would be damaging for me, or any leader for that matter, to get up on a stage like this and not tell you, hey, there are some, there are some interpretive difficulties with a passage like this, right? If I got up on the stage and I said, let me tell you what this means. I'm right, and everybody else is wrong, and anybody who disagrees with me is a bow. I do you a disservice. Does that make sense? Because it isn't that clear. It's not that clear. And, and frankly, that's not the kind of people we want to be anyway. We don't want to be people who call other people bozos, even if we think they're wrong, right? So let me tell you 
uh, let me tell you what I think this is saying. And I'll start by saying this. He cannot, in my opinion, my opinion, he cannot be saying that women have to be silent in every context all the time. He cannot be saying that because in order for him to say that, he would be contradicting himself from this very same chapter, right? He has just said, and I, and I had you underline it a second ago, but in 31, he says, you can all prophesy one by one. He is not limiting the way in which the body can prophesy. And we understand that prophecy is public speech, right? And if you look at that in conjunction with what he says in 11.5, he's already said, when a woman prophesies, uh, I just think she should wear her head covered, right? So he believes that women can speak in the public assembly. It wouldn't make any sense, in my humble opinion, for him now to be saying, this is why we don't allow a woman to speak. What is all that other stuff, if that's what he's saying? So first and foremost, I want you to understand that from my position... He cannot be saying that women must be silent all the time in every context and that they have no place to lead or to speak or to prophesy or to speak in tongues in the assembly. That isn't what he's saying. He can't be saying that because he would be contradicting himself. He would also be contradicting passages like the one in Joel from the Old Testament that talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Joel 2.28 says, It shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Right? There is even an Old Testament allusion to the fact that the day would come when men and women would speak publicly about the truth of who God is in a prophetic sense. I don't believe that Paul here is contradicting the Old Testament. I don't think that Paul is contradicting himself. Uh, There are all kinds of places, and I don't don't want to get lost in this, but he would, if he was saying women must be exclusively silent all the time, he would also be contradicting the broader biblical record, like what we see about uh, Yodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4, 2 and 3, or Prisca in Romans 16, along with Mary in Romans 16, and Junia in Romans 16, and Trophania and Trophosa in Romans 16, and Phoebe in Romans 16, and Nympha in Colossians 4. In, in all of these places, these women are called co-workers. They're called church leaders. Sometimes they're called uh, either familiar to the prophet, to the apostles or one of the apostles, depending on your interpretation. I don't believe that any of these people could have been co-workers and leaders in the church while remaining absolutely silent all the time in the assembly. That doesn't make sense. And so what we understand is if he can't be saying that, he must be saying something else. If he can't be contradicting what he himself has just said, he must be saying something else. If it's Also, by the way, if he's just talking about a broad prohibition for women to be silent, it's a little out of place in this particular case. It feels like a non sequitur. It feels like he's been talking about order and decency. And then for him all of a sudden to be like, you know what? This reminds me of a thing I've been meaning to say. I don't like it when women talk in church, right? It just doesn't fit here. Because he's making a bigger point. In the bigger point of what he's saying, let's look at how these verses can make sense and how, how I believe they do make sense. He says already, if someone's going to speak in tongues, they should do it orderly and decently. And and if there is no order or there's no interpretation, submit yourself, submit your silence and your speech for the good of others. Then he says, if people are going to prophesy, there should be two or three and it should be weighed. But if somebody else gets a prophecy, it's going to require someone else to be submissive in their speech for the good of others. Now, in that same line of thinking, he's talking to a house church and he talked, I think he's still talking about the weighing of prophecy. 
He says in 34, the women should keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is a shame, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I think the key to unlocking the emphasis here is what we see in 35 when he talks about uh, women asking their husbands at home. And again, I know that for some of you, that probably makes your hackle stand on end. Like the idea, women in the room, that if you had a question or a concern, you're supposed to go home and ask somebody else. And for some of you in the room who are single, you're like, I don't even have a husband. So I'm just supposed to like suck it up or whatever. Right. I I don't think, I don't think that that's what he's saying, but what he does say in 35, and this is important. He refers to the idea of your own man. Remember in this case, when we're interpreting woman or man, it's the same word as husband or wife. So the interpreters who are translating it into English are making some kind of a guess there either way. Right. But what we do know in 35 is that what he says is if a woman has a question, she should wait until later, submit her speech for the good of the group, which is a thing he's already said twice in two other contexts. She should submit her speech for the good of the group until later when she can ask. And the, the literal translation is her own man, her own man. Well, that means to me that he's not making a broad prohibition to all women in all times in every context, but he's talking to a specific kind of woman. The kind of woman who has her own man. He's talking, I think, here to wives. And so where it says women, I think it would be just as good and probably more helpful to translate this wives. I believe that as he's in the flow of thought, thinking about the the weighing of prophecy, he's thinking about a particular thing that can happen in their particular context, and he's speaking against it because it's disruptive. And the thing I think he's speaking against here in 1 Corinthians 14 is the idea of a husband getting up and prophesying in the church and then being questioned or judged or criticized by his spouse. Remember the culture we're in, right? It's radical. It's radical for Paul to be saying in this culture, it's radical for him to be saying if there's something that a woman wants to learn, she can learn it at home. Because in this culture, women were not encouraged to be educated, nor were they typically educated. The likelihood is that most of the women who are now participating in this Christian church, which is meeting in a home, were being afforded uh, equality and status that they'd never before felt in their culture. The invitation to prophesy or to speak in tongues, the invitation to weigh prophecy and to speak publicly. Many of these are women in this particular context who'd never spoken to anyone publicly and only ever spoken to their husbands when it came to other men. So now all of a sudden we're in a church where a woman is welcome to come and prophesy and to weigh prophecies. And I think specifically what he's talking about here is that in that context, we were starting to see a breakdown in marital harmony where a woman who's expressing this newfound ability to be educated and to learn and to grow, she either is potentially, she could be misunderstanding some of the language that's being used, or she just has a question about what's been said. And if it's her husband who is the prophet, when she questions him, it becomes a little disruptive. I will tell you uh, personally that every week, every week, right, that I preach, my wife and I have a pretty great conversation that afternoon, right? We have a pretty great conversation over lunch where she says sometimes to me things like, I didn't think that middle section made sense at all, right? Why didn't you just say it like this and like this and like this? And then it would have been so clear. And I go, oh, I wish I would have talked to you about that beforehand, right? 
But let me explain to you what I think is happening in 1 Corinthians 14. And it's not just my opinion. There are other people who agree with this interpretation. I think what's happening is that someone gifted by the Holy Spirit to speak in a prophetic way is declaring prophecy in the church. And you've got a woman who's got all this newfound invitation to learn and to grow and to equality inside this house church. But she's inside her own home or the home of a friend where she has normally got her guard down anyway. And she's going to her husband I don't think that's the clearest way to say that, right? And I will tell you, I love the feedback I get from my wife on Sunday afternoons, but I wouldn't necessarily like that feedback right now, right? I actually asked her earlier this week if in the middle of this message she would stand up and shout something, and she said no. So there you go, right? So there's that. But I want you to imagine the situation and imagine how it would feel. Remember, too, the broader culture is one of honor and shame. It's one that subjected women in all things. In many cases, women are considered property in this culture, right? And so for them to be invited to speak and to share would have been this incredible new freedom. They're stretching their wings in Christ. And so I think what Paul is saying here is that in the midst of this context, if your husband gets up to preach and he says something that you disagree with or have a question about, maybe you should consider submitting your speech for the good of others, not forever. You can still learn the thing you want to learn. You can ask the question you want to learn. You can understand the thing you want to understand. You're welcome to be learning and growing, but maybe right here in this little house church for you to argue with your husband in front of all these other people, it brings shame upon him. Note, by the way, that in these verses 34 and 35, he does not refer again to disorder. Now he is referring to shame. Let me read it to you one more time. He's talking about shame. Women should keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. As a little bit of a side note, uh, when he says, as the law also says, commentators scratch their heads a little bit because there is no place in the Old Testament, no place in the Old Testament that requires women to be silent all the time. And in fact, there are great examples of women who are in leadership in the Old Testament. So the commentators suggest that when he says, as the law states, that he's either referring back to what he's already said in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 about the Genesis order, and that we were created to help and to serve one another, and that when a woman doesn't wear her head covering, it it sort of messes up that help, that helping position, right? Um, That may be what he's referring to. He may be referring to the fact that women didn't serve in the synagogue. That's possible. But nobody's really sure. One guy actually said he thought maybe that he's referring here to the conflict between Miriam and Moses. But it's all guesswork, right? Nobody knows. There is no clear, concrete place in the Old Testament that requires women to be silent. So he says, women should keep silent in the church that are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands or their own men at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. He's not talking about disorder. He's talking about shame. And in that particular culture, the only people in that context who would have been brought shame are their husbands or fathers if they themselves are being critiqued and weighed in the public forum in a house church. So all he's saying is if it happens to be your husband that's speaking, then maybe you withhold your criticism until you get home in the afternoon and then go crazy, right? You'll actually probably make that person better. Now, we could say in our context, because we don't, we don't live in the first century, we don't live in the first century, the principle that he's applying here in 1 Corinthians 14 is just as true for, for Brian Johnson, who's married to Kristen. I'm trying to see if I see him. Yeah, he's sitting back there. Kristen preached a couple weeks ago, right? And she's declaring prophecy. I would, I would guess that she probably wouldn't love it if Brian stood up and said, well, I'm not sure I agree with that interpretation, right? 
And he's a learned man. It's possible for him to have questions. I'm sure they have conversations at their home. Same thing would be true with Kevin Smiley when Katie teaches or with Jim Key when Jenny teaches, right? It's, it's not just for women. And by the way, in this text, he's not saying women should be silent and submissive to all men. What he's saying is these particular women, these wives, should be submissive not in their whole person, but in their speech, to the speech of others for the good of the body. Does that make sense? This isn't advocating in this text for women to submit to men in all cases and all times. He's talking specifically about speech. He says they should be in submission. He's not talking about all women to all men. He's talking about these women in their speech. A submission of shameful speech to speech that is orderly and honors. Verse 36, he says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that is reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Right? What he's advocating for is the same thing he's been advocating for all along, that things would be done decently in order. But here's what happens. You take these verses like 34 and 35 and you pull them out of the context and all of a sudden it sounds like Psalm 137.9 where blessed is he who dashes the children upon the rocks. Or Ecclesiastes 10 that says money is the answer to everything. We don't believe that. You have to look at it in its context. And that's not just true of 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. It's true of the entirety of the Bible. There are all kinds of passages that people historically have pulled out to advocate for their particular opinions. And we want to be really on guard against that. In this particular case, from the beginning to the end, he's been arguing and advocating for a worship service that is considerate of the other. He can't possibly be saying that women have no place to speak because he himself has already advocated for them to speak. So I think he's talking about a very specific contextual situation that's happening. And he's saying to these wives, when your husband is prophesying, maybe hold your your weight, your, your criticism of that or your concern about it or your questions until you're with him in private. And then you can learn all that stuff and you can have that conversation in a different place. But in the house church, it would be disruptive to the order because it would bring shame to your family member. Does that make sense? It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue of shame, not an issue of order. He says all things should be done decently in order. I think for us, um, there may be some of you in the room, and I'm finishing here, there may be some of you in the room who... Uh, who you don't like this, right? Because you've learned something different growing up or maybe recently. Maybe you have a favorite pastor online or a favorite commentary writer or whatever. And so even as I'm laying this out, you've been taught your whole life that women should be quiet in church, even though that doesn't necessarily always play out. Maybe that's a thing you've always been taught and you don't know how to how to reconcile what's actually here in the context with what you've believed for a long time. I want to encourage you to lean into that uncomfortability, Right? Not just for the sake of this particular issue, but the sake of any issue in which you may be wrong. I will tell you from my own experience, I grew up in a very conservative, uh, a very conservative church, and I have learned over the last, you know, 40 years or so, that, that there are a lot of things that were taught to me as a child as absolute fact. And anybody who disagrees doesn't love God and doesn't love the Bible. And I've come to realize as a person who's studied the Bible now for many years myself, that many of the things that were taught to me as absolute fact as a child aren't absolute fact. They were my pastor's opinion, but he never took the time to tell me it was his opinion. And I'm not being critical of him, 
But what I am saying is we have to be more careful with the way we interpret the texts. And in places where we're looking and saying, here's my interpretation of what's happening, as I've said to you this morning multiple times, this is my interpretation of what we see in 1 Corinthians 14, that we all welcome it as an interpretation. And you should know that you should have your own opinions about these things. And your opinions can be informed by your favorite pastors. They can be informed by your favorite commentators. They can be informed by your favorite podcasters or whatever. But you should shape your own opinion. Because every human voice you're listening to, including mine, has a bias. All of them. They all have biases. Right? You, seek the Spirit of God and listen to His voice. Study the text in its context so that we can understand more broadly what it looks like to be an assembly of God that worships, not in confusion, but in peace. That worships in decency and in order. Our God is a God of of peace and not confusion. Order for the sake of exercising freedom rather than freedom which leads to chaos or order that leads to tyranny, but rather what he's advocating for and what we want to have here in our worship services is an order that creates a playground for freedom. Does that make sense? Order that creates a playground for freedom. If you're worried, and I'll say this uh, last... If this morning you're worried about getting 1 Corinthians wrong, right? So you might be in a place this morning where you're thinking, man, I really don't want to mess up this thing about women being silent in the church. What if, I, what if I've got it wrong? Well, note also that that isn't the point of this text, right? The point of this text isn't, hey, if you get something wrong, you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to pass God's quiz and he's going to give you a D, right? No, the point of the whole text, the point of the whole book, the point of the whole New Testament is that in the spirit of Christ, we love God and love others. And there's a lot of room to get a wrong answer on the quiz. Do you know what I'm saying? Because we serve and love a gracious God, you can have a difference of opinion and we can still be brothers and sisters, right? It's only in the places where we become tyrannical or become chaotic that we lose the spirit of Christ in our gatherings. So if you want to be afraid of something this morning, don't be afraid of misunderstanding verses 34 and 35. Be afraid of either tyranny or chaos in your worship because what he's pointing us at is consideration in our worship for the glory of God and the good of others. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for the easy Bible passages and we thank you for the hard ones. Uh, We thank you that you have created us with minds and intellects, the ability to know you and to hear your voice. And we pray this morning in particular with this complicated text that that we would um, not walk away confounded by the things we don't understand, but rather that we would walk away inspired and motivated by the things that are perfectly clear. That we would recognize God that you gave us your word and that you inspired and wrote it in a particular time, in a particular way. And there are contextual things that we have to guess at. But we do our best and we pray for your guidance. And we pray, God, that you would help us to be a church of order for the sake of freedom, for the glory of God and the good of others. That that would reveal Christ in the way that he loved you and loved others as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.